This morning we are going to be in a passage, a familiar passage in Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, the story of the wise men, first 12 verses, and we're going to make reference to a few times the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew uh, 6 and 7, so we'll be turning that way uh, during the sermon. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, let's stand together as we read God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen went, went and rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. It's good to just take a moment while that thing's scrolling up (laughs) to look at the faces that I'm going to be preaching to this morning. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which I mentioned a minute ago, um, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And we know that as the Lord's Prayer. And in the second line of that famous prayer, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's like Jesus knows that even in our prayers, there are kingdoms that are in conflict with each other. There's the kingdom of God, and what what is that in conflict with? The kingdom of me. Those two kingdoms are constantly in conflict. They're they're in conflict in your prayers. And so he uses this this line to, to pull you out of, remember what Paul Tripp said in Jonah, the claustrophobic kingdom of one. Remember when Jonah went outside of the city and and Tripp called that the claustrophobic kingdom of one. He just thought he knew best. He knew what was right. Everything should revolve around what Jonah thinks. And if you're in your own kingdom, that's the true truth about you and me. So Jesus has this line in the prayer to, to, to sort of break the, that grip of your kingdom versus his kingdom. And that when Jesus is king, 
he knows what's best. His will should be done because that, that's the best thing that can be done. James Smith writes in his book, You Are What You Love, to be human is to desire some kingdom. If you're a human, you desire some kingdom. It's a longing, a vision for what we think society should look like. Now listen to this picture. Listen to what he says here. This picture captures our imagination. We crave that picture. Everybody desires a kingdom, and it usually presents itself in some kind of picture, some kind of vision of what you think you should be or society should be, and then we crave that picture. We orient our lives in pursuit of that picture. The question is not whether you long for a kingdom, James Smith says. The question is not whether you long for a kingdom, but whose kingdom do you long for? Everyone's longing for a kingdom. Everyone's hoping that that, that, that kingdom, that will is going to be done. Is it the claustrophobic kingdom of yourself or is it the kingdom of God? And so Jesus, before he starts his Sermon on the Mount, he makes this provocative offer. Repent. For the kingdom of God is here. He, he's coming and he's saying, hey, you're, you're going the wrong way. You're going in the claustrophobic kingdom of one. Let's turn around. Let's, let's come in my direction. Let's get into the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's like he doubles down on the seriousness of his offer. He tells you throughout the sermon what it's going to be like to live in the kingdom. That's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. But in the end, it's like he circles back around to this repent, to turn around, to come in his direction, because there's, because there's only one of two directions for every human being to choose. And we'll for, be familiar with these options because they're familiar pictures for us. There's three consecutive pictures he gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, and there's... All, each picture has two options. 7 verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, the options are limited. There are only two gates one that leads to destruction, one that leads to life. And Jesus is coming to say, repent, go, don't go on, the, on the, the gate to destruction. That's wide. Everybody's on that road. Come towards me. Or in 16, he says this, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. No, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. But every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, another easy picture. There's two kinds of trees, just like there are two kinds of gates to go through. And you're either the tree that bears healthy fruit or you're the tree that's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire because you bear bad fruit. And finally, perhaps the one we're most familiar with, Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man, a wise man, like the wise men in chapter 2, who built his house on the rock. So when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, it didn't fall 
because it had a foundation on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them is like a fool. They're going in the wrong direction. And what have they built their house on? On the sand. See, three consecutive pictures. It's a way of just Jesus saying, I'm emphasizing to you for everyone in the world, there's just two ways to go. You either have your, your house on a solid foundation that will withstand God's coming and his judgment, or you don't, and it'll be destroyed. You're either the healthy tree that bears good fruit, or you're the diseased tree that bears bad fruit, and you'll be cut up and thrown in the fire. You're either on the way to destruction in the wide way, or you're, you're in the narrow gate. He couldn't, he couldn't close his sermon with any greater clarity and this this crowds at the end maybe like our crowd today verse 28 chapter 7 they're astonished (laughs) there's only two ways to live i mean that seems awfully binary yeah i mean that doesn't seem seem like you know it, it seems welcoming to all kinds well All kinds of people can come in to one of these two ways. But there's not a hundred ways to get to Jesus or a hundred ways to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's just one way for everybody. And they're astonished. And you can imagine they're going home asking the question, which gate am I going through? What what kind of fruit is my life producing? My life is a house. What have I built my foundation on? Now let's turn back to Matthew chapter 2, and you need to immediately notice that Jesus uh, sets up, or Matthew sets up, a kingdoms in conflict. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, Herod the king. So there's a king, and behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king? See, there's a conflict. When Jesus enters into the world, he's always entering into where someone else is king. When he enters into your world, he's entering into your world where someone else is king. There's kingdoms in conflict, and Matthew sees it here, and Herod is the king. He, he's come into his world, and he wants his things the, his own way, and Jesus comes in, and he, he enters in to compete, to disrupt Herod's little claustrophobic kingdom of himself. And as we read through this passage, what I'm going to highlight here are there are three different ways people respond to Jesus' call for him to be king. The true king has come into creation, and he's calling out, and in this passage we have three different ways people respond to this offer for Jesus to be king. First of all, Herod, you can oppose the king. If Jesus is king and he comes in, you can just say, I I just prefer to be king, so I don't want another king. Secondly, you can worship the king. That's what the wise men do. They have come to worship. We want to know where he is because we want to worship him. Or you can ignore the king. You can oppose the king. You can worship the king. You could ignore the king. Let's look at those in turn. At the time of Jesus' birth, Herod was the king. He was evil, to say the least, just completely self-absorbed. 
Herod had his wife and three sons killed because he thought they were conspiring against him. See, see, anybody who steps e- even an inch into his own little kingdom, who looks like is going to take some power or take some glory, no. So his own wife and his three sons, they get eliminated. When Herod was inaugurated king, he sent out a, a, um, a call to all of his enemies to say, let there be peace now. So his enemies were like, okay, he wants to have peace. And they came to this big banquet and he slaughtered all of them. Herod was known to dress up like a common person and go around like in the town squares. And he would just be like a common person like you might think of at a coffee shop. Hey, what do you think of old Herod? And he'd take notes. And if anyone said anything bad about Herod, he'd note who that was and he'd have them murdered. Herod knew he was so massively unpopular that people would celebrate when he died. So he wrote into the law for his people to put to death the most popular people in the country on the day he died. So there there would actually be mourning on the day he died. So all the respected people that people beloved, they were going to die on Herod's death just so that there would be some kind of mourning. Can you imagine that? I mean, that is somebody who's really locked in, right? That is somebody who really doesn't want anybody else to be king. The biggest obstacle for Herod is Herod. It's not something else. It's himself. He wants to be king. You see this in verse 3. When Herod, the king, heard there was another king, what does it say? Oh, he's troubled. Mm. I I don't want anybody else to come into my little kingdom He's gripped with fear. It's, he's terrified. And why is that? Why does he murder all the babies under two to make sure he gets Jesus in this slaughter? It's because everything has to revolve around Herod. You can't live in the kingdom of God and still be king. So one response is you could oppose the king. Now, a lot of you are saying, gosh, that's terrible. I'm, I'm, so, I'm glad I'm not like Herod. Well, let's think about Peter. One of Jesus' closest followers. He happily followed Jesus, listen, right up to the point where he didn't want to follow anymore. Do you remember that point? I mean, I'm happy to follow Jesus. I'm happy to tell people about Jesus. But when Jesus turns to me and said, hey, eventually we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. What did Peter say? Hey, we're not going to go that way. What was Peter saying? I want to be king. You see, you don't have to look like Herod. You could look like Peter and oppose the king. I want to be king. See, if you follow Jesus right up to the point where Jesus goes in a different direction or makes a demand that you don't like, and then you decide to go in a different direction, then guess who's the king? You are. You can't just follow Jesus around on all the things that you like, and then at the point that he he makes a demand that you don't like and say, well, I don't like that. I don't want to go in that direction. Then really you're just saying you're still the king. Repent and enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
When you do, you don't get to pick and choose the parts of Jesus' teaching you like and what you choose to follow. It took Peter time to adjust for Jesus to be king. Maybe we're still in that adjustment period with Peter. So there's different ways to oppose the king. Secondly, there's those who worship the king. These are the wise men. This is the main part of the story, verse 2. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star. We've come to worship. Wise men are looking for the true king, and they're looking to worship. Now, I hate to bust up your nativity scene, and probably you know this, but there's no reason to think there was just three wise men. There were three gifts, but probably a big caravan came from Persia, and there were lots of people in this caravan. But, you know, you just can't put a caravan on your dining room table as well, so it just turns out to be three. And, again, I hate to pop the balloon of expectation, but they didn't visit Jesus on the night of his birth or the next day. It was probably a year or so later. You're like, I mean, wow, how is this possible? I mean, the whole time I've been looking at my nativity set and been setting it up, and it's not right. Well, it's all right. It's all right. But their visit, see, they enter into a house, and they see Mary and Jesus. Their visit reveals some important things, and I just want to highlight a few of them. First of all, they've come to worship. That's the most important part. Proscuno in the Greek. It's a, it's a humbling picture because kuno, the second part of the word, means dog. So worship, for you dog owners, is when you come home and your dog's like running around. You know, if you leave your house for five minutes, you come back, it's been five days in a dog's mind, right? They don't know. Yeah, they're running around. Or five days, they have the same reaction. They come home. My daughter, Morgan, she had a little dog growing up called Maddie, a little black poodle. And we would come on home, and Maddie would be happy, but when Morgan came home, oh, my gosh. And always followed Morgan. We'd all be around, but she, little Maddie's always running around Morgan's feet. That's the picture. That's worship. Say, wherever you you lead, I'm going to go. We got any old school Baptists here? Remember that song? Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Today's version is wherever he leads, and I agree, I'll go. <laughs> you see, that's, that's not really having Jesus as king. That's not really worshiping. I'll follow myself whom I love so, wherever he leads. J.C. Ryle says this about the wise men. The wise men saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no wise words out of Jesus' mouth. They saw nothing but an infant on the lap of a poor woman, yet they worshiped. No greater faith can be found in the whole of the Bible. They, these wise men fall to their knees because Jesus is king. Secondly, 
their worship is connected to their wallet. Do you see that? As soon as they come in, verse 11, they open up their treasure. This is how you know. This is how you know you're bearing good fruit back in the Sermon on the Mount. And then going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. They fell and worshiped him. Then what is it's like immediately connected. Your heart is connected to your wallet. They open their treasures and they offer him gifts. I love this picture. Worship sends a signal to your wallet. See, no matter whatever you worship, no matter what your vision of is, is of your kingdom, it's connected to your wallet. If it's your kids, if it's your education, if it's your health, if it's your savings account, your retirement, uh, whatever it is, if it's your car, it's connected. Whatever you worship, you're going to send your money to that. And we know from Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 6, for, for wherever your wallet is, there your worship is also. Doesn't say it quite that way, but that's what is meant. Wherever your treasure is, there what? There's your heart. Where, wherever my, my worship is, there is my wallet also. They're connected. They're, 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 they can't not be connected, Jesus is saying. Third thing that we notice, and one of the most memorable parts about how Matthew frames his whole gospel, it's very interesting to me, is that the first people to meet Jesus outside of Mary and Joseph, typically, who do you think that is? Like angels and shepherds, right? That's sort of the picture that's the Luke 2 picture. But that's not how Matthew records it. So he's got, as the recorder, he's recording true information, but he's putting it together to say something. And the very first people that get to meet Jesus are people who are Gentile astrologers from Persia. These, these are the people for the Jewish people who are as far away from God as you could possibly get. Isn't that interesting? Now, why would Matthew pick this group to highlight as the very first people who get to see Jesus? I think because he's, he's, he saw them in himself. He's a tax collector. Who's the next furthest away from God? It's a tax collector, right? So when Jesus come, when Matthew, when Jesus comes to Matthew and says, Come follow me. He's got a heart that just beats for everybody who's really far away. Because if he could possibly choose me, he could choose anybody. And so he puts this together in a way that we say, wow, anybody can enter into the kingdom of God. And if you keep reading to the very end of Matthew, what does Matthew 28, the very last verse of the Bible, or that book say? Go into all the nations. You feel Matthew's heartbeat all the way through. It's really, it's really as inclusive as it can be. There's only two ways to go, but everybody's welcome to choose. Which way will you choose? Who or what will you worship? You can oppose the king. You can worship the king. And sadly, there's one more group here. It's people who ignore the king the chief priests, the scribes. And this, I would say, as I close, is, is the most challenging group. 
it's, it's, it's surprising that it would be this, this group of people. I mean, the scribes and the Pharisees, these, these were the, the pastors. These were the seminary-trained people. These are the people that were the go-to. If you had a question about the Bible, you would go to them because they would answer because they did have a question about the Bible and they called them. And yet these are the people who ignore Jesus. They're called by Herod. Hey, where, where is the king supposed to be born? And they say, well, hey, we know that. Micah 5, the king's going to be born in Bethlehem. But then after that, complete silence by the chief priest and the scribe. That's stunning to me. Jerusalem to Bethlehem is five miles. Now, you have been studying your whole life that somebody's going to come to Bethlehem. And that somebody is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the king. And, and, and a weird caravan comes to Jerusalem from Persia and says, we've been following a star, and they say a, 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 somebody's been born king, and you're telling me it's in, in Bethlehem five miles. We're on our way. Wouldn't you think the, the chief priests and the scribes would go with them? I mean, you're just talking about one day out of your whole life. Let's go see if there is a king. And what do they do? They don't care. That, that to me is stunning. The people who seem to mo know the most about Jesus still want to be king. They're religious, but they don't worship. They look a lot different than Herod on the outside, but on the inside they're the same. I mean, they go to church, they say the right things, they give money, they do all the things that sort of make them look like they're doing something, but on the inside... They really want to be king. And so they just ignore. They ignore Jesus. M maybe he's an attachment to their life would be a better way. Wherever he leads, and I agree. I mean, in other words, I'm still at the center of my life. I can't take too much time off of the way I would like my life to roll to, to find out about Jesus. They ignore Jesus. Some of you will remember this classic 80s film, um, The Breakfast Club. Remember this film? It's about, I was doing Young Life at the time, and so it was a great Young Life sort of picture because it was all high school students who've been detained, and they have to come to Saturday school, Saturday detention. And they basically sit in this room, and they just talk about their lives. It's a very interesting sort of character study. And in one very powerful scene, one of the young guys who's kind of the jock in the crowd, he sort of confronts this girl who's kind of goth. She's dark. She's very withdrawn into herself. And he looks at her and he says, what, what's wrong with you? Is it bad? Is it real bad? like your parents and she nods and the whole thing slows down and draws you into lean in like what is she going to say and he says what did they do to you and she looks at you and says they ignored me I mean, you're expecting some massive abuse or something, and it was a massive abuse. 
They completely ignored her. She came from a family that lived in the right place and had all the right outside sort of things, but really the, par- the parents were completely disconnected or only superficially connected to their daughter, and she felt it. She knew it. The, the last group, they're only superficially connected. Oh, they come to church on Christmas and Easter for sure. But they're just superficially connected. Really, in the end, they still, they still want to be king. The worst part about these people is if you asked them if they were connected, they'd say they were. So Jesus has some of the harshest words for these people. You're, you're a whitewashed tomb. Remember that? You look great on the outside, but inside, because you want to be king, you're on your way to destruction. So Matthew 2 is a great passage at at this time of year to do a little introspection. There's there's only two ways to respond to God's offer. You're all in, like Maddie. You're worshiping. Wherever he leads, I'll go. And if you're not in that group, then you're on... A giant highway that lots of people are on. Some of the people who are on that, on that highway feel like they're on the narrow road, but they're not because they're only superficially connected. So we want to ask ourselves in a sober moment at some point, maybe today, do I oppose the king? I mean, I wouldn't say it, but and it really, I've set my whole life up that I'm the king. Have I decided to worship the king? Wherever he leads, I'll go. Or am I just superficially connected? You might be in greater danger than you know. So God sends the people who are farthest away to get, capture everybody's attention. Everybody's welcome to worship. Come, follow me. Let's pray together. Lord, as we we warm up this old story, there are parts of my heart that I see in all these three characters. And I pray that you would help us see ourselves correctly, that we wouldn't fool ourselves. Would you send your Holy Spirit in a way that would help us to go wherever you lead? I pray this in Jesus' name.